We're going to be in 1 Peter 1.13 this morning. Let me read it to you, and then I'll kind of set this up, and we'll talk about it a little bit. 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The sum and substance of what we're discussing today is where our hope needs to be. It's where our hope needs to be. It's one short verse that has uh, the, the possibility of having profound repercussions in our lives if we will take it and apply it to who we are in Jesus Christ. We've, we've got to understand this, that he has made us to be something so that we might be able to do something in community, right? He has made us to be a people so that we might be able to be a people used by him in our community. We've got to understand who we are. We've got to understand what is worthy of our hope. It, probably since the beginning of time, any election cycle always kind of centers itself on the idea of, of hope. And so hope that you can believe in, hope that you can see, and then we rally around those candidates that, that most closely align up with our ideology. And so when we see people that we really, we believe in their message, we believe this guy, this girl, she can get it done, he can get it done, we buy in. We buy in. And so for a lot of people this past week, your hope centered on, please God, not Donald Trump. This is it. This is a lot of you. This was like your preoccupation come Monday was, please God, have mercy, not the Donald's. Like you can imagine him in the UN, he's there to address the assembly and all he can say is, you're fired. Like, they don't work for you, that's not how this works. So Ted Cruz won and many people rejoiced, that's where they placed their hope, their dreams on. Bernie Sanders came a hair's breadth away from winning. A lot of people, they were so dismayed in that because their hope was on, on him bringing victory. If we place our hope on things like that, we're going to be disappointed. If your hope rests on a political candidate or an ideology, they're so sorely going to disappoint you. You're going to be so dismayed come the end of their election cycle, come the end of this election cycle, whether they take office, whether they spend four years trying to bring about all the promises they made just to secure your vote. You're going to be sorely disappointed if you place your hope in this person to bring about an eventuality that you've set your hopes and dreams on. You're going to be disappointed in that. So many things in life call for our hope. They call for us to find ourselves in that. If we could make one more sale, if we could increase profits by this much, if we could increase or decrease attrition by this much, if our home would only appraise for this much, if we could only live in this neighborhood, our kids could only go to this school, little Johnny could only hit the home run when the recruiter's there and never strike out when the recruiter's there. If all of these things were to work out, then finally we would see our hope to be realized. Can I tell you that these are not the hopes and dreams of elect exiles? These are the hopes and the dreams of the people in our community, and they are making their way into the hopes and dreams of Christian reality. But Christian reality should always be centered on finding our hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. Hope is one of those things that we have to be incredibly careful with. We can be so incredibly certain and sure that something is going to work out in a particular way, and when it doesn't, we're devastated. Uh, I told the, the <laughs> this is embarrassing, I told the group Wednesday night 
uh, probably my most devastating, like unfulfilled, un, unlived up hope story. And it's, it's ridiculous, and I'm going to receive ridicule forever after for sharing this, but, but this is what it is to live in an, in an electronic age. When I was in elementary school, I had this unassailable hope on an unbelievable reality. Unbelievable to the point where probably if I had said it out loud, outside of letting this thing live in my brain, I would have recognized how incredibly impossible, uh, stupid, trivial, futile, ridiculous it is. Nevertheless, I didn't. I had this completely unassailable hope centered on a, a figure and an action. Everything in me led me to believe that this was absolutely true and something that would not come to be false. I mean, I just knew it to be true. You would ask me, do you know this to be true? I'd say, oh man, like I know that I'm never going to be seven foot tall. I mean, I'd know this thing to be true. I had a, uh, let's just call it a healthy crush on the lead actor of the TV show Punky Brewster. I'm regretting instantly. <laughs> it sounded so much better in front of 12. And so I had this unbelievable crush on this character actor. And we lived in Norway. There wasn't much on television. And so it, it, that's making it better somehow. Wasn't much on uh, television in English. And so I used to watch this, this show uh, religiously. Let's just call it that. It makes it sound worse. And so I, I, I became convinced that the lead character was going to call me on Saturday. I just knew it was true. Um, my, uh, my crush or, or infatuation with this character had developed into this, like, crazy, insane. I've seen help since then, and it's no longer a problem. But I just knew, I just knew she was going to call me on Saturday, and it was just kind of a matter-of-fact deal. I mean, I was excited about it, but I was, like, there was nothing, there was no, oh, I don't know, maybe she will, maybe I'm convinced. No, I mean, she's going to call me Saturday afternoon. I just knew it. I just knew she was going to call me. That's for my hopes. That's for my dreams. They all centered on how my life is going to change from this interaction on this telephone call. Apparently, her agent was going to let her call long distance from the U.S. to Norway. You know, that's her problem. And so, uh, the weekend gets closer, and my dad says, hey, we're going to go fishing on Saturday. Oh, this is not good. Nobody's got a cell phone. She's not going to be able to reach me when I'm out there fishing with you, brother. I need to be home. But I knew enough not to say, Dad, Punky Brewster's calling on Saturday. I can't, I can't go with you. That just sounds crazy. And so uh, Saturday rolled around, and I went out with my dad, and we drove for a couple of hours into the mountainside uh, in Norway, and we're fishing, we're trout fishing. I mean, it is gorgeous. It's a river pouring through this thing, trout jumping and just impaling themselves on my hook. And you look, and just God's creation's all around me. I'm unmoved. I'm unshaken by this. Because every time I reel in a fish, I'm like, stupid rainbow trout, I bet you taste nasty. I'm missing Punky Brewster's phone call right now. We could be talking about how I was supposed to be trout fishing with my dad, but instead I'm talking to you, what up, girl? And so every time, I mean, this is how my morning went, this is how it went. And so we get in the car, and I'm so glad that this ridiculous fishing trip is over. And as we're driving home, I'm so completely convinced that this, reality, this was a reality that I expect to walk in the door. My mom's going to just give me this note and say, hey, would you call Punky back? She called you. We go by that. We don't, there's no first, last name with us. And so I walk in the door. 
And there was no sheepishness to this. There was no, hey, you know, hey, you happen to, you know, anything special happen? It was just, Mom, you've got a message for me, don't you? You've got a message for me, don't you? Time stood still. Time stood still. She turned. She looked at me. And she said, no. <laughs> I don't have a message for you. Devastated. Devastated. All of my hopes and dreams centered on an unbelievable, ridiculous reality. But I'd led myself to believe that it was going to work out this way. I'd led myself to believe that this was true. I'd led myself to believe that this was valid. And I'd led myself to believe, no matter how ridiculous anybody might have told me it would be, that it was a sure thing and going to work out. Ultimately, ultimately, even though this is an incredibly ridiculous story, all of our hopes that aren't centered on Jesus are just as ridiculous. They're going to disappoint. Your hopes centered on your family, your hopes centered on your job, your hope centered on, on Greenville being the next rock wall, your hope centered on whatever they are, all these things are going to ultimately disappoint. Our hope as Christians should always be centered on the person of Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected, and us united with him. Let's look at what it means to set our hope fully on Jesus. Peter opens this up and he says, therefore, now, He's gone through a lot of telling us who we are in Christ. And, and effectively, if you're to read through and kind of see the structure of how this has worked out, Peter spent 12 verses telling you who you are in Jesus before he ever calls you to do something as a result of it. 12 verses, he's been building up. This is who you are. This is what you need to understand before he ever calls you to do something. Now, he's trying to communicate to us to something to us through that. If he were to come to you and say, Nancy, I need you to go out and I need you to live righteously. And she'd say, oh, okay, I can go do that. And she goes out and she's seeking to live righteously. And by some, some amazing stretch, I mean, you're a sweet lady, but some amazing stretch, she accomplishes this. She's beginning to think, I've done something amazing, therefore I am something amazing. And so it's building in this idea of works-based righteousness to her. And so I'm calling her to live out a reality that she knows herself not to be. But say we change it. And I say, Nancy, you are loved. You are redeemed. God has foreknown you. He has called you to be something. That even in the midst of tremendous difficulties, you can have an abiding hope and promise. Now go live this out. You see, she's not living out hoping to live up to something. She is living out the reality of who she is, and it's radically different. So we need to remind ourselves, before we begin to look at the imperative, the command, we need to look at the indicative, this description of who we are. Let's reflect back. Probably the most pivotal description of the audience that Peter writes to is found in verse 1. We are elect exiles. You are an elect exile. By God's choosing, by his intervention in your life, he has made you to be a pilgrim and a wanderer, a sojourner. So much that we would say of this place, this is not our home. This is not your home. You have houses here, you have family here, but this earth, this country is not your home. You are homesick for a country you've never lived in. 
This is the reality. This is the angst of what it is to be a Christian. You are an elect exile. God has sovereignly moved in your heart to call you to citizenship of a country you've never lived in. This cosmic reality has wrought spiritual flesh in you, and he's caused you to be wholly different. He sets your identity in him and not in the world. Do you recognize that? That your identity is found in Jesus and not in this world. Amen? Amen. Uh, We are elect exiles. Beyond this, we see that the work of the Trinity was done in bringing us to faith. It was the foreknowledge of God. It was the sacrifice of the Son. It was the sanctification of the Spirit in verse 2. God has, has wrought these things in us. He has made us elect exiles by this cosmic work of the Trinity in our hearts and outside of time. We are foreknown in Jesus. Verse 20 spoke of Jesus and it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, and we are known in Him. We are known in Jesus. Verse 3, we receive this amazing news, this, this buttress and support which communicated to us this unassailable hope had life. It had life. He started verse 3 and said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. This is great news for us. There is a hope which resides within every heart of every Christian that is not dependent upon us to vivify and to make alive. There is a hope in your life that no matter what difficulty, no matter what turmoil comes your way, is beating, and it's beating because of the work of God in your life. This is great news. This is a terrific insight for us that we have to make sure we're completely convinced of. Because if you're not completely convinced that there's a living hope beating inside of you, when you make it in the midst of trials and difficulties, your temptation is going to be to wash out. Your temptation is going to be to say, I can't do this. I need another job. I need a different calling. But when we know, when we look at this and we say we have a living hope, hope that beats inside of us when we are in the midst of difficulties, when we're in the midst of chaos, when everything in our life is falling away. We lean not on our endurance, but we lean on this living hope. He's caused us to be born again. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by faith we are tethered to God, and this living hope brings life to our bones. It brings life to our lungs. It brings life to everything we do in every encounter we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in the midst of this living hope, verse 4, having an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This great news is, is that this inheritance we have isn't dependent upon you to have a fireproof gun safe that your whole house could burn down around you but your inheritance is safe kept in this because it was it could withstand tremendous heat for numerous hours we find out that our inheritance is kept safe not because of our ability to hold on to it and and keep it safe and wrap it in bubble wrap but our inheritance is kept safe because god keeps it in heaven for us So even though we have salvation now, our ultimate salvation awaits final giving to us, being brought to us by God, either when Christ returns or when we die. And just as our salvation is kept safe, so too we, verse 5, are guarded. We're guarded. 
This is tremendous news. If you've never heard these things, that there's a, a holy God who created you, who created you to know him, and who gave to you eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. And this eternal life, this inheritance, is kept safe for you, and you are kept safe, guarded for it. Now look at verse 6. So far it has been variously good news for the Christian, but in verse 6 we recognize that there is chaos, there is trouble, even for those who hope. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Life is not easier for the Christian. There are, aren't less difficulties, there's not less sickness, there's, there's, there's no more just kind of basic joy in life for the Christian than for your non-Christian neighbor. So it's not if God walks through your neighborhood and he says, uh, healthy and wealthy, healthy and wealthy, and then he comes to your atheist, non-believing neighbor, and he says, cancer, death, destitution. Boom! That's not how it happens. It's not that God cosmically strolls through your neighborhood or walks down Park Street, and he's like, loves me, good life, hates me, well, I'm going to catch up with you later, loves me, good life, hates me, ha <laughs> ha car's not going to start this morning. You're going to lose your job when you get there because you're late again and I'm doing it to you. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Our union with Christ does not bring us the blessings that we're so tempted to associate with this life. It doesn't bring us promotions at work. It doesn't bring us lungs that breathe right, limbs that function correctly. It's not making our kids obey. That is associating things with the gospel that aren't there. The gospel is about life saving, not life transforming, right? We're not looking to transform all these little things in our life so that if we worship God, our bank account is full. If we give to the church, God's going to bless us and give us overflowing abundance. This may happen, it may happen. Some of you, today, you might write a million-dollar check to this church, and then God might give you five million more. More likely, you're going to write a million-dollar check to this church, and your bank's going to call you tomorrow and be like, I'm sorry, you had like a buck fifty in there. What were you thinking? <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. If you have that dollar fifty, we need to talk. You don't need to write us a check for a dollar fifty either. Yeah, we have a lot of conversations we need to have. You have $1.50 in your checking account. That's a whole nother sermon, though. Let's keep walking through this. And so even in the midst of tremendous difficulties, look at what happens for the Christian. For the Christian, this is what's happening. In the midst of these trials and difficulties, verse 7, this tested genuineness of your faith gets revealed. So in the midst of testing for the Christian, this is what it's like. God is peeling off the, the layers and levels around you, and he's revealing the work that he did in you in the beginning. And he's causing you to lean on this. He's causing you to depend on this. Depend upon the tested genuineness of your faith that is wrought by him, not produced by you. Being produced by you leans on works-based righteousness. Being wrought by him leans on God's everlasting arms. It leans on the love of God who worked in you even when you're completely unlovable and far off. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you loved it. You were a pig wallowing in sin, greed, and all these things, and you enjoyed it. Check me out. I'm a nasty pig and I love it. Yes! This was us. There's no shame in this because we were lost in that. There is rejoicing, though, in what God has done in us. He's produced life in us. He's made us alive. We're no longer wallowing in this. We are rejoicing in him. 
the tested genuineness of our faith is revealed. Somebody throw some Gatorade. Verse 8, we got into, and he said, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, do not see him now. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Even in the midst of tremendous difficulties, the Christian is able to rejoice. Why? Because of their faith tethered to God. And this rejoicing is unable to be described. And so as you run into your non-believing spouse, as you run into your non-believing friend, your neighbor, people that that ridicule you on the street, you're not able to rationally explain it to them. Why are you able to rejoice in the midst of this? You're a paraplegic laying there. Why are you able to rejoice in the middle of this? You have, you have Zika. You have all these things. You've lost your job. Why are you able to rejoice in the midst of this? Because I trust and lean on Jesus. It does not make rational sense. Quit trying to make it make rational sense. You are destroying the beauty of the mystery of what God has wrought and produced in you when we seek to boil it down to, I've got a great community I lean on. No, that's not it. You have a great community because you're a believer, but it's not that great community causing you to be able to rejoice. It's what God has done in your heart that allows you to rejoice. Verses 10 through 12, he wanted these Christians and he wants us to understand that the work of God in salvation isn't some late first century development, but it's something that God had laid in motion before the foundation of the earth. That everyone who's ever saved is ultimately saved in the person of Jesus. It's the sum and substance of the prophet's prophecy, and it's the message that produced faith and new birth and life in you. This is what he was doing. And when he got to the end of that in verse 12, he said, this is how great your salvation is. Your salvation is so great, it's so amazing, that the angels who forever encircle God, who worship God, who see him and behold his glory and his majesty, these very angels, recognizing that when Moses asked to see God's glory, what did God say? He said, look, you can't see me, but you can see this backside passing glory as I move by. The angels see it. They behold, they see God, but still, when it comes to the salvation that you received, that I received, they want to bend over backwards to catch a glimpse of it. This is what you have in your life. This is what you have in your heart, this amazing salvation that we're never fully going to appreciate, we're never fully going to understand until we stand before God and all of our sinful tendencies and ways are stripped from us and we behold him as he is. And finally, we'll learn to appreciate, we'll finally learn to realize exactly how amazing the salvation is. And so this kind of gives us an understanding that even as you grow in your Christian walk, there's still more to understand about salvation. And at some point, we can never continue to press on. There's always more to know about salvation, and you will never truly grasp it attain this perfect understanding of it because to do that is to perfectly understand God. And we will never, not once, perfectly understand God here and now. We're elect exiles. We understand who we are. On the basis of understanding who we are, he begins to call us to be something on the basis of this. So he says, therefore, in in essence, since you're bringing all these things back in from verses 1 through 12, therefore, on the basis that you have this living hope, therefore, on the basis that you're an elect exile, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. Let's look at the first one. He says, preparing your minds for action. There is something 
cognitively, in our minds, the, the Christian needs to do in order to, to get themselves ready to set their hope fully. And it's in our minds. There's a beautiful picture of this uh, kind of verbiage spilled out. What he's actually saying there, and maybe you have a different translation that spells it out a little more woodenly, is girding up, girding up your minds, girding up the flesh of your minds, the loins of your minds. When Exodus chapter 12, God is preparing the Israelites to leave Egypt. God has assailed, he has attacked, he has brought tremendous plagues on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to to let his people go so that they may leave, they may go and they may worship him, ultimately so they could head to the promised land. And he prepares to bring the final judgment on Egypt. He prepares to bring this, and it's the, the night of the Passover, and this is what he writes to the people. In this manner you shall eat. And so they're eating the Passover supper. With your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, when your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This idea, we see him appropriate it to our minds. Our minds are so spent and thinking about all these things. And so whether it be, you know, who favorited your, your picture on Instagram or you want to follow somebody on Instagram or Twitter or maybe you're not on any form of social media and it's just people calling you, you know, oh, can you believe what so-and-so did? Or, oh, did you see so-and-so put their house on the market? Hmm, I wonder what's going on in their home. Yeah, we all know they can't afford to move. And so we find all these things that are searching for, competing for our attention. And in order to prepare our minds for action, we've got to throw these things out. You gotta recognize that as a Christian, you're not called to focus on all these distractions around you. And that's exactly what they are. If you find yourself in the process of engaging in either social media or just being a social busybody or just trying to be involved in all these different things, and you find yourself giving more time to this than in your careful preparation of knowing who God is and what He's called you to be, this is a clear, a clear indication that you need to cast these things off. It's a clear indication you need to cast these things off. It's not a very attractive message. It's not a, 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 this, this message where you say, oh, yeah, but I, I really like to look at pictures and all these things. I really like to know these things. It's super helpful for me to know what's going on in everybody's life. Tell me this. How is knowing all this junk going on in the people's lives around you made you closer to God? Reading some idiot's rant on Facebook about how somebody didn't greet them in the hall. How has that made you closer to God? Seeing some ridiculous meme of Donald Trump's hair standing up and doing this, and, oh, it looks like the cross. We need to vote for him. He's got holy hair. <laughs> How's that made you closer to God? How has that made you closer to God? It doesn't. It's a distraction. There are no shortage of distractions Every generation is going to find a way to be distracted. And it's being distracted that calls our focus and attention off of God and renders us inert. It renders us ineffective. You are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And so your mind has to be prepared. Your mind has to be alert. If you're in the middle of a burning building and all these things are coming down around you, you have to be able to focus. And to lose focus would render you dead. 
in reality, this world is burning down around us. And many of us believe ourselves to be phenomenal at multitasking. But in the reality, in multitasking, in this idea of spiritual multitasking, we're placing God further and further down the list of things that we want to give our time, focus, and attention to. And what Peter's telling us here is, this is who you are. And being this is who you are, you need to prepare your mind for action. Recognize what God has wrought, what he has made in you. Paul in Ephesians 4 Speaking of the unbelieving mind, had this to say in 4.18, he said, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so what he went on to say, and what he's describing there, is who we used to be. We used to make decisions solely from a fleshly perspective. I'm going to take this job because I get more money because I can provide better for my family. I'm going to make this sacrifice because it's going to put me here. Then on my five-year plan, this is going to, work out, going to work out. I'm going to date this girl because she looks better than my old girlfriend. So I'm going to dump this girl. I'm going to break up with this guy so I can be with this guy. We're making decisions based upon what gratifies us. We're making decisions upon what makes us happy. This is hedonism. I want to satisfy myself. I'm going to make decisions to satisfy myself. The Christian is no longer a slave to these things. You're no longer a slave to sin. So why are you making decisions that the world values? This is difficult for us. So when it comes to where to live, what job to take, which school to go to, whether to go to college or to go into the mission field, all of these things, we find ourselves laying them at the foot of the cross and saying, God, would you help me prepare my mind for action? Friend, in the cross, he has given you a new mind, and in giving you a new mind, he sits ready to give you insight and to give you direction. We need to follow God in his lead in our lives. Not let him be this thing so we go out and we make decisions and say, God, would you bless that as I'm passing by you? Instead, it's very much we prepare our minds for action. Jesus, when asked by the scribes and Pharisees what the two most important things that they would need to do, what's the greatest commandment of the law? In Matthew 22, verse 37, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and look, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we see our inward is doing what? It's focused on loving God, and our outward is doing what? Showing the impact of how that inward love has transformed us. If you want to prepare your mind for action, then you have to meditate on who God is and who he says you are. Spend less time trying to do self-help and more time recognizing you need the help of the God in Scripture and calling out to him to give that help to you. We need to prepare our minds for action. Look what he says next. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be sober-minded. Now, of course, the first thing that comes to mind, you can't be sober-minded if you're dependent upon some type of external source to to live, to breathe. If you are, simply put, if you're an alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, then you're not sober-minded, are you? If you're an alcoholic, you're not sober-minded. And so if I'm drinking scotch up here, I'm not. I'm drinking apple juice. (laughs) But say this with scotch, wow. You should be worried what I'm going to say next because I'm not clear-headed, I'm not sober-minded. 
there is a reason, there is a reason why if you get pulled over, police officers do not allow you to conduct your own field sobriety test, right? So you can imagine that if you got pulled over, you're doing, you're doing 90 and a 30, and he says, pardon me, sir, have you been drinking? No, not me. Would you, would you like to conduct your own field sobriety test to indicate to yourself whether or not you've been drinking too much? Probably going to say I don't need it, right, to be honest. But if I were to go out there, I am crafting my own design for what is right and wrong. I'm seeing my own straight line and seeking to walk on it. I'm seeking, you know, uh, all these things, and, and, and I can, you know, stand on this leg and touch this toe and whatever else is involved. And, and I think I'm doing a pretty good job, even though I'm laying flat on my backside, bleeding from the head and saying, whoa, what happened? Did you feel that earthquake? When we seek to be sober-minded, we have to ensure that we have systems, people in our lives, to evaluate just how we're doing. Being sober-minded is so much more than alcohol. This isn't an indication that, that Peter's driving towards a prohibition of alcohol. He's driving at something so much greater. He's driving at saying, what other influences in your life are directing where your head is at? Is it pride? Is it greed? All of these things function to, to render the Christian ineffective. All of these things function to intoxicate us, to make us dependent upon them. The praise and adulation of those around us. We post stuff on Facebook or Twitter or you know whatever because we want people to like, we want people to respond, we want people to write and say, you're such a good and great, wonderful person. We don't believe these things because of what scripture says. We believe these things because of what all the sycophants that we have following us on Facebook. That's not fun. That's not attractive. That's not, that's not Christian. This idea of being sober-minded, we need people that, we can, that, that know us, that we know then that I can walk into their office, they can walk into mine and say, man, I'm struggling with lust, I'm struggling with pride, I'm struggling with envy. My neighbor just got a, a swimming pool. I want that to be my swimming pool. My wife has more friends than I do. I don't want her to have more friends than I do. I want her to be dependent upon me, and I want to be her only friend. I want her to spend all her time with me. Church should be a place where there are people in your life that if you have crap going on in your life, they call you on it. There's no other way to articulate it because we're so completely desensitized to it. But if we have junk going on in our lives, if we're not treating our spouse correctly, we're not working with all our diligence as unto the Lord in our jobs, we're being lazy, we're doing engaging in processes and, and spending time with people we shouldn't, if we're pursuing things that are less than 100% pursuing God, we need people to call us on it. If you have people in your life that won't do that, find new people. Find new people. If you don't have people that will do that in your life, then, then maybe that's a good question for you in your next friend interview, if there is such a ridiculous thing, where you might walk up and say, hey, man, what's your name? Joe. Joe. Hey, uh, Joe, my tendency is towards laziness. How do you feel about that? Would you call me on me being lazy? It's time to get up early. Oh, so, oh okay. Who, who's got a 7.30 wake-up call? Nobody? Okay. I'll, I'll be back to you. I've got to probe the audience here. And so this idea that we're not looking for friends that make us feel better about who we are, we're looking for friends that make us be more diligently, more diligently pursue what it is to be a faithful believer in faith in Jesus Christ. What he gets in here 
And he says that you need to be sober-minded. You need to prepare your mind. He's calling us to evaluate all those things that seek to distract us from fully pursuing God. And it's going to be different for each and every one of us. Everyone has something they struggle with. If you take an honest evaluation of your life, if you look at your life and say, I'm not struggling with anything, friend, you're just not trying. The Holy Spirit is always working to produce sanctification in your life. And the work of the Holy Spirit in producing sanctification in your life is going to be digging out all the junk in your life and bringing it to the surface. There is something in your life that God wants you to get rid of. We need to be sober-minded. Look what he goes on to say. We've prepared our minds for action. We're seeking to be sober-minded. And we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope for the Christian centers on a future event. Hope for the Christian centers on a future event. Hope for the Christian doesn't center on our ability to make it through the junk that we're going through. If your hope, say you're in the, in the midst of turmoil at home. Can't remember the last time you slept in the bed, you've been sleeping on the couch for months. Can't remember the last time your wife looked at you with anything but hate and disgust in her eyes. Can't remember the last time you looked at your wife. And hope for you centers on peace in the home, bringing these things back together then you've missed hope. That's not hope. If you've lost your job and you're without a job and, and, and everything in you centers on, if I could just go back to work, things would be better, and that's where your hope is, that's not hope. If you're a student, it's the worst semester, and you're fairly certain that Satan has incarnated himself and taken up residence in your teacher's heart, could be possible, and everything in you centers on making it out of this semester, that's not hope. That's not hope. You have no ability to discern whether or not those things are going to come to pass. That's well-wishing. That's fingers crossed, hand in the wind, knock on wood. Man, I really want to see this thing come to be. For the Christian, our hope is unassailable. It's living inside of us on the basis that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was resurrected, made alive. Our inheritance is kept safe. We are guarded, and we're able to have the tested genuineness of our faith revealed in the middle of trials and difficulties. Why? Why? Because our hope doesn't change. Our hope was on what God did for us in the past and on the future that he's called us to. And the reality of what he's done for us in the past and what he's calling us to allows us to be able to endure the slings and the arrows and wade through the difficulties in the present. The reason, the reason the Christian is able to have unassailable hope centers on what God has done, not our ability to be indifferent or to make it through. You've got to understand that. If you find and you go through tremendous heroes of the faith, what you'll find is their faith was solely dependent upon God, not how they maneuvered and worked in the system to muddle through and to make it through. Times are not likely to improve for the Christian living in America. It's not likely. My prayer is always that God would bring revival. Revival. 
I think you read through and you see times of tremendous revival in the history, and nobody was really kind of expecting it. Everybody's praying for it, but it wasn't like there's this, this slow kind of move where everybody started living more and more moral lives, better and better. Men quit cheating on their wives. Wives quit cheating on their husbands. People quit stealing. It wasn't that people became more and more moral, and God finally said, I guess I better do something. Like, they're this close to heaven. I guess I better do something in the midst of this. God can bring revival whenever and however he desires. He can bring it in Greenville, Texas. He can bring it in Roy City. Or he can bring it in Timbuktu, Africa. We're not waiting on God to bring revival. God has already revived our hearts, and he's made you alive for him. And on the basis of that he's made you alive for him, he's called you to live for him. This isn't an option for the Christian. It is your identity as a Christian. And in the midst of living for God, there's only one place and one place alone to place our hope. And that's on the sure promise that our future is settled. And it's settled because of something that happened way before we were ever born. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that our hope is secure. We do not have to wonder if you'll disappoint. God, we don't have to be tentative in trusting you, but you call us into full submission. You call us into radical trust. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to look to you for hope. God, that in the midst of difficulty, we would look to make it through somehow, to quickly escape difficulty. Father, that we would look to you. We would trust you, that we would hope in you. God, our tendency, my tendency, is not to look towards the second coming of Jesus as a place of hope. It's just not. God, I pray that you would change my heart and you would change the hearts of those in this place. That our inclination towards hope would find its object in you, in the sure work of the cross, and in the promise of the return of Jesus Christ to set all things right and to usher us into this country for our true citizenship lies. We pray these things in his name. Amen.